Hello and welcome to Making a Historian, a podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams and not just lay in the bath all day and read The New Yorker. The exam is coming up, and so I'm taking this opportunity to do a bunch of backwards glances over the stuff that I've read for the past couple months. I'm going to be trying to boil down my five lists into uh, kind of bite-sized portions, things that really, really matter. For the next four episodes, I'm going to be talking about key developments over the 18th century. Today, I'm going to be discussing the 18th century economy. The big story is that over the 18th century in Britain, you get a very slow increase in productivity and population and urbanization that we can understand as an industrious revolution. People work harder or are forced to work harder and make a denser economy. They have a greater capital uh, accumulation. There's just more stuff, more tools, richer land, more clothing. This uh, is pushed by a more integrated national and international market. The first thing to point out is that there is some debate about how quickly economic growth in the 18th century actually, you know, grows. Uh, the old idea from um, Dean and whoever the other person is, I forget their name, um, is that the economic growth of the 18th century rose pretty quickly after the middle of the 18th century due to labor-saving machines. However, recent um, revisions of that have suggested that economic growth over the 18th century was much slower. Key to this is the idea that uh, it wasn't a sudden jump in economic productivity, but more a very slow development. Um, and also, we understand that this slow development was probably pushed not mainly by labor-saving devices, but by capital accumulation. About a fifth, uh, it has been calculated, is due to productivity growth. The other four-fifths is uh, due to capital accumulation. As the economy is growing, so too is the population. This is maybe one of the big mysteries. The population of Britain before, let's say, 1700... Uh, seems to have a natural ceiling of about 5.5 million, but by the middle of the century, that is broken and it continues to grow. Um, this happens because of increased birth rates, not because of improved uh, mortality conditions. Um, and we can understand this as people marrying earlier, responding to the slowly improving economy. So let's talk about what makes that slowly improving economy slowly improve. The big thing is that it's pushed by agriculture. This is still primarily a uh, society driven by the land, driven by crops and animals and, uh, you know, wheat. Um, in the beginning of the 18th century, in 1700, 55% of everybody was employed in agriculture. Uh, in 1800, only 36% are. Um, one of the big things that happens is called the agricultural revolution. This is caused by new crops and new ideas like uh, triennial crop rotation, um, liming and marling. These are usually uh, a lot more labor intensive that increased output by about two and a half times over the century. Um, 
And this is even more remarkable when you understand that this output is being increased as the number of people who are working on the land decreases. One of the reasons why this might happen is the increase in number of animals, uh, especially horses, who are being employed in agriculture. These are important because animals provide actual power. Horses can drag prep, uh, you know, enough uh, uh, plow for seven people. You need seven people to drag a plow to replace one horse. And also, um, horses and other draft animals and uh, agricultural animals provide fertilizer, which makes, uh, you know, the production of crops a lot more efficient. The other development is structural. We might call it capitalist agriculture. Uh, farms are getting bigger. They're being run increasingly per more professionally and they're more being run towards selling to a larger integrated national market for money. Alongside this push to uh, improve agriculture comes urbanization. Um, the urban population jumps from about 17% of all uh, English people living in cities to uh, 21% in 1750 to 27% in 1800. Now, what caused this peculiar phenomenon of the widespread urbanization of people and the widespread uh, increase in, ten in intensity of uh, farming. I think that what uh, caused it is problems in the credit economy. One of the big facts of economic life in 18th century Britain is that there wasn't enough money to go around um, because of a natural shortage of silver and gold and because of a kind of silly uh, attempt at making the currency more stable in the late 18th century, there wasn't a lot of actual coins. And so most transactions happened by credit. Uh, I think nine out of 10 transactions, it's been calculated, uh, were actually done on credit, not on actual money. Accounts would be settled at particular times at the end of year, but this meant that everybody was indebted to everybody else. And if one person um, called in your debt, you might not be able to pay them, even if on paper you totally could, because you'd have to go to all of your debtors, all the people who owe you money to get the money to pay off the one person who's asking you for money. Debt was such a central part of people's lives that we can actually identify a recurring dream that people had. Uh, people had a recurring dream that death came to their door in the same way that a bailiff comes to a person's door to, to collect a debt. So here we have like the central anxiety of 18th century life, the problem of being indebted. And I think that this pushes people to work harder longer and smarter so that they can be better insulated to uh, protect themselves from the toils of the credit economy. This is a revision of Jan de Vries's industrious revolution argument, and I still think that that holds as well. His idea is that people work longer, smarter, and harder to uh, benefit from a new variety of consumer goods uh, that are available on the expanding national market, things like tea, coffee, porcelains, um, cotton, these consumer goods that are domestic and comfortable. Another reason why we have this slow development of the economy is the state. The big thing here is the process of mercantilism, the fact that British shipping is protected by navigation laws, the fact that these colonial commodities like coffee, tea, sugar, uh, tobacco 
were made in overseas colonies which were protected by the state. National debt is also a really big factor in this. Uh, we have a huge expanse in the national debt, which provides a lot of people investment opportunities, but it's really likely that this is actually kind of a damper on what we consider the traditional uh, advance of the economy, which is produced by uh, investments in uh, factories and technology and stuff, because it crowded out productive investment. If you wanted to invest in something in 18th century England, you would buy government bonds, which would provide a really fixed rate of return for a really long time, and that you could trust. It uh, has been shown to actually have a, uh, a chilling effect on um, uh, actual lending practices. And we should also mention warfare. Uh, security was provided by the state, uh, which allowed most British people to not have to worry about warfare except in those rare times when you have Jacobites streaming over through from, from, from Scotland. Uh, and we should also mention that there was a accidental protectionist push in the last uh, 10 years of the 18th century when the Industrial Revolution really gets going because of the Napoleonic Wars, shutting off a lot of trade with Europe. Now, all of this, I think, creates a national market. You get improved uh, communications and transport, things like mail coaches, uh, improved roads, a canal building boom, which allows people to communicate more and trade more at longer distances. A great commodity that we can see as an example of this is the uh, declining prices of sea coal because of the expansion of canals. This will be important for the 19th century story as coal becomes the prime mover of the economy. Um, this national market also creates a consumer society based in London, where people learn the sorts of, you know, polite domestic goods that people need to uh, consume to be considered middle class or uh, upper class or gentlemen. Um, so people go to the, the London market to figure out the kinds of goods that they should consume. And this we can see as a new kind of trend in consumption, a trend of fashion. Um, Samuel Johnson observed that fashion was so big in his period that people were even being hanged in new ways. Uh, there was fashion in pottery, furniture, belt buckle, fabrics, uh, flowers, and even animals. Newspapers were taken over by advertisements. And we can see that the pace of fashion actually increased. Uh, in 1710, fashions changed about every decade. In 1770, they changed every year. And the big missing piece of this, the thing that everybody's going to be asking me about is, well, what about the Industrial Revolution? That big story, the wave of gadgets that sweeps over England sometime around 1770. For me, that is an important story, but the Industrial Revolution in the long term, I think, is less about cotton mills and more about iron and railways. And because of that, I think that the story should be told in the 19th century. Uh, it should be a story that we tell uh, about the 1815 to 1840 development of uh, iron and railways. However, we can see the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution here as groups of people sharing ideas about new things, trying out new uh, patterns of goods for a national market. Uh, 
Bolton and Watts' uh, uh, efforts in Soho are a perfect example of this. Not only are they the first factory to mass-produce steam engines, not only are these steam engines, you know, orders of magnitude more efficient than previous steam engines, not only are these steam engines running on coal and used to pump uh, mines to make sure that there are more coal, not only can these steam engines be used to drive rotary motion, but Next door to these uh, factories making steam engines, Bolton and Watt are making um, belt buckles for a high fashion clientele of people who want the best goods. Josiah Wedgwood, their friend, is making um, pottery in new ways to satisfy an increasingly critical and uh, curious national market. Uh, and everybody's sharing ideas about how to use coal in factories, how to use steam engines, uh, how to experiment with industrial goods, how to market these industrial goods, how to get a royal approval for them so that people think that they're cool, how to ship them long distance. Everybody is sharing these ideas. And so hooking it up to the national market, you get the spread of these new ideas. This will be important because you can get a... Uh, 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 multiplier effect of otherwise minor technology. Uh, for example, uh, we could make uh, uh, iron from coke in the early 1700s. Abraham Darby's method of coking iron was developed very early, but there's a mystery because nobody used it until the middle of the 18th century, and it didn't become really important until the later part of the 18th century. The mystery can be solved if we connect it up with a national market that makes things like raw materials easier to get, that makes things like ideas about markets easier to get, that makes things like contacts with uh, potential business partners easier. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tweet us a question. I got a question um, about 18th century and 19th century Christmas, which I will be answering in a culture episode later. Uh, thanks very much to Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. Um, this afternoon we'll be back and we will be talking about uh, 18th century culture. Thanks very much for listening.